Hello, I'm Stuart Thomas. And I'm Tony Cosgrove. Together, we're on a journey to better understand a topic we have no knowledge of, but are fascinated by, human connection. To help us learn more, we'll be chatting with a wide variety of guests from around the world. From authors to healthcare professionals, community groups to psychologists, asking them to share their unique insights with us. At the end of our quest, we hope to have gathered together all of the ingredients that make up human connection to turn them into actionable and practical insights for you listening. Today we are delighted to be talking to a policy and strategy consultant who has written influential reports on loneliness, ageing, health and care, including the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness. She works with clients across the third sector to explore issues, communicate effectively and develop strategies for change in policy and practice. Kate Jopling, welcome to the Human Connection Journey podcast. Good to be here. Nice to see you. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Kate, where in the world are you? I am in uh, not at all sunny southeast London today, so that's where I'm from, joining you from. Fantastic. No better place. Well, thank you for joining us. Now, Kate, at the start of every conversation, um, it's important to say we are generally students with a thirst for knowledge, and we came across Human Connection. We loved what we read, and we set out to learn more. And so to get us started, we have three questions we'd like to ask you. So the first question is, what does the term human connection mean to you? Well, it's a big question, isn't it? I mean, I think it's it, it's a funny kind of phrase, isn't it? Because I think when we use the term human connection, it sounds like a sort of terribly serious concept. But I think, to be honest, what we're just talking about is humans being in contact with each other and in relationship with each other. I think sometimes in policy worlds, which I spend a lot of time in, we're a little bit uncomfortable with words like relationship. But I think human connection is about how we relate to one another and how we are in contact. I think the reason we use phrases like human connection rather than relationship is so that it encompasses that whole range, though, of ways that we're in contact with one another, right from sort of nodding and smiling in the street up to being in an intimate couple relationship. But I think all of those are parts of human connection and how we relate to one another as people and I'm you know it's an issue that I've been working on as a sort of flip side to loneliness which is kind of my public policy interest so I talk a lot about loneliness and people say well that's you know, it's terribly negative isn't it what's the opposite well the opposite is connection the opposite is relationships the opposite is contact it's all of those things I think we're still wrestling for the perfect term to define the positive thing that we all need maybe human connection is it is it i think in some ways connection can feel a bit clinical but i think you know there we go I, I, there's no perfect way of describing that thing that we actually all know and need and crave as people and that makes us who we are as humans and uh, we've spoken to a few guests now tony haven't we now i just get this real sense a bit like how you've described it there kate you expect it to be this kind of grandiose idea but when you kind of boil it down to its essence it is and you've just said it's nodding and smiling to people in the street. It's those kind of small moments that when you add them all up to the course of the day, guess what? We have human connection. Yeah. With your work in terms of loneliness, have you seen anything particularly new or different by way of thinking around human connection? I think the biggest change has been is just how much more this conversation happens, particularly in the public policies world, but in the academic world, in sort of serious environments so we are taking a conversation about that warmth of humanity that bit that happens when we kind of recognize our shared humanity together in different ways out of a sort of warm and fluffy box 
and into recognising that it's actually really quite serious and essential. And so you're seeing it talked about in business environments, you're seeing it talked about in public policy environments, in health environments. So I think that it's not so much that we've got new ideas, because this is as old as humanity Mm. is. It's more about the increasing comfort there is to talk about the importance of connection between people as something as important as I don't know, productivity or, you know, the economy or our physical and mental health in a kind of clinical sense. I think, it, you know, it's that that's shifted really in the time that I've been thinking about these issues. And Kate, can I ask, are you seeing different people talk about this? You know, you just hinted at there with mentioned words like productivity, you know, kind of businessy word. Is the the variety of people who are find this is relevant to them? Has that broadened, do you think, in the recent past? Well, I think, you know, at one level, we're seeing sort of new people enter this debate. So we've seen quite a lot of books being written about loneliness and connection and how we relate to one another. You know, books about male friendships, books about connection in a digital age, books about all these different kind of ideas. And those are coming from people who have a whole range of prior interests. And I think they're sort of converging on thinking, well, what's going on in our society at the moment? What's changed? What feels like it's a a problem and an issue? And settling on realising there's something about how we connect as individuals and how that connection builds a wider society that requires attention. I mean, I think to the point about businesses, I think we first got in touch through the fact that I'd done some work on loneliness in the workplace. And, you know, that conversation in the workplace about loneliness and or the importance of relationships at work feels different, feels new to me. I still don't know that actually the corporate world is completely comfortable with that being an important agenda, but there are pioneers recognising that actually if we're going to be effective as organisations, be effective as businesses, it's not just kind of hard and fast things that we need to pay attention to. The relationships that we have in our workplace and the relationships that we have between the people that work in our organisations and, and outsiders, whether they're customers or other clients or whatever it might be, that all really matters. And actually, you know, I think probably it's coming along with that wider recognition of the sort of softer skills and what's going to make our, our society tick into the future well if it helps kate you say you're not um, certain that wider business is comfortable with this conversation if it helps we can confirm wider business is not totally comfortable with this conversation <laughs> and that is a blind spot that needs to be addressed and i guess we're sure you know, i don't know what you think of this but i guess we're part of like new people coming to into this conversation you know we've both been doing corporate communications internal comms for a long time and even five years ago this would have been a kind of really i don't think Five years ago, business would have wanted to use the lonely word. I think there would have been a stigma attached to it. Maybe with a kind of a slightly cynical head on, the one thing, I guess, and again, I don't know whether you've experienced this, Kate, but when organisations address a topic like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was employee engagement. Now we've got employee experience. Maybe the next new thing is human connection. Business always comes at it from the point of view of how can we make people more productive? If people are happier at work, if they're more connected, they're more productive. If they're more productive, that's a good thing. Whereas I think maybe some of the work you're doing in terms of the non-work environment, to give it a clunky title, they're doing it for the, the human reasons, aren't they? I think, you know, at one level, I don't really mind. I mean, if you're going to come into this agenda, I don't really care where you started. If, you could, if you're going to start doing work that takes this stuff seriously, 
fair play, whatever, I don't, you know, whatever gets you there. And actually, even in the sort of public policy sphere, um, in the way that the NHS is investing in some of this, it's not driven by a sort of milk of human kindness, really. It's driven by the fact that this has serious health outcomes. And, you know, there is good evidence that links loneliness to employee engagement and through employee engagement into productivity. If that's what brings you to the table, then fine. But I actually think, you know, some of the people that I do speak to who work, um, you know, they tend to be the pioneers that will come into the environments that I'm talking about. They are genuinely, you know, interested in well-being and recognising that actually you can't kind of generate well-being through sort of individual units of humanity. You have to pay attention to the way in which people connect with one another. And actually, you know, that over many years, I mean, I've done a lot of work on ageing, as you mentioned at the beginning, and, you know, looking at things like, well, how do we encourage more people to work for longer? One of the biggest motivators to be in the workforce is for the relationships that you have there, for the connection, for social contact. That is going to be really, really important to pay attention to if you want to kind of recognise some of the realities of who our workforce needs to be in the future. So I think I really believe that there is a really important moral drive towards paying attention to our fundamental human need to connect with one another. You know, I appreciate that that doesn't always make the world go round. And Kate, just looking at those conversations that you are having with people who are in business, where are we in the kind of maturity cycle? Are, are they still pioneers? Are they still the first movers? Or are you starting to see momentum of people kind of coming along on the tailcoats of the first cadre of people who had these conversations? Look, I don't have perfect knowledge in the in this sphere. I mean, it is clear that the research on loneliness and the workplace is getting, you know, there's more research being done that is presumably being commissioned and enabled by people. You know, when the Campaign to End Loneliness convenes businesses to talk about what they were doing on loneliness, there were a group of pioneers there, but they were quite shy about talking about what they were doing, about blowing their own trumpets, partly because I think they felt that what they were doing was only kind of the first steps you know you can get people into rooms to talk about loneliness in a way that you probably wouldn't have been able to do a decade ago but I do think it's still not um, kind of top of the boardroom agenda I don't think it's where people are starting I think it's sort of packaged into that kind of wider understanding that staff well-being is an important important issue I mean you know the reality of our workforce in this country for the foreseeable future is that you are going to have to enable people to work whilst also dealing with health issues, with wellbeing issues. And what we know is that supporting people to have really important, meaningful, supportive relationships is one of the best ways to enable people to go through those difficult times. So I think there is a rising tide on which this should float, but that doesn't mean that when times are tough, this is what people are thinking about. So what's my answer i mean i still think it it is the pioneers that are talking about loneliness in the workplace but i suppose i'm optimistic that they should be leading a charge that others will will follow you've um you've just mentioned the campaign to end loneliness and i was sorry to read was it this week that that's coming to a close early next year what a shame yeah and you know that's indicative of stuff that's going on in the wider voluntary sector so yeah the campaign to end loneliness will be closing in its current form but i mean the small c small l campaign to end loneliness will continue because there is so much work going on in communities and you know this kind of 
issue of loneliness, the number of reports I read that say we work with people who are facing these challenges, but actually one of the biggest issues they face is loneliness. It's just there for all to see that the challenge of disconnection, when we do not have good social relationships around us, when we don't have that network of contacts, those sort of different layers of support, life is so much harder. So addressing those issues is always going to be part of addressing wider kind of social issues. And that's whether you're at work or at at the rest of your life. I don't, I don't really remember, Tony, but when we started kicking around this idea about exploring human connection, obviously I didn't realise we were pioneers at the time, but that's what Kate is calling us, that's fine. But um, one of the kind of the, the thoughts that we had was just in the UK, for example, we see things like the erosion of the corner shop for the big supermarkets and we see the erosion of people going to pubs and we see the erosion of institutions like people going to church on a Sunday. Do you think that's contributing in part to some of the increase in loneliness that we see generally in our communities? Yeah, so this is sort of idea of the common life, isn't there? This idea of the kind of things that we always had in common and that we just sort of did. And you didn't have to plan them or, you know, make an arrangement to do them. They just sort of happened. They were the rhythms of life where we would just come together and not. And I remember this really powerfully came through in a conversation I um I was actually attending, um, I well, wasn't running it for a change, but I went to listen in some conversations with people who were interested in loneliness. And it happened to be in the, the Midlands, in one of those areas where there'd been kind of mining communities. And the people there spoke really, really powerfully about how when everybody worked basically in pit and the life, life had its very familiar rhythms. So, you know, everybody would kind of walk to work the same way. You'd bump into people on the way to work. You'd leave work on the same way. You'd probably pop by the pub on the way out from work. And then you'd see each other again at the the kind of community events. And that that had been eroded. Now, I think it's very, very noticeable in, in communities like that. But I think it's a reality in lots of ways that the sort of rhythms of our life are slightly different and that we do lose that ability to just really casually connect but you can recreate that so there's there's really good evidence that levels of loneliness differ from one community to the next and what that is telling us is that something is different in some of those communities and what i think the hunch is is that it's it's about that kind of community life so you know it can be as subtle as the difference between well what does the high street look like is it a place where people cross and bump into each other or is it a place where everybody's separated out and you kind of go to one place for one thing and one place for another because just bumping into each other in the street allows familiarity to build allows you to feel more like you belong allows you to feel more welcome and I think that is the very first foundational layer of ultimately being able to connect at those higher and deeper deeper levels and so I think those subtle differences between places can make a real difference to whether that place becomes a place where loneliness is particularly a problem. And I think there's a sort of parallel to that in, in every other aspect of our lives. So I you know, did some work with students a while back, just before the pandemic, but we were talking about what had happened in the way halls were designed. And they were saying, you know, actually, we're not allowed to keep our doors open to our bedrooms because of fire regulations. It does make sense. But that means... Unless I go to the kitchen, I don't bump into anyone. I don't see anyone passing. And so mm. I don't get to know anyone. Whereas obviously if in probably the old days where the fire regulations weren't held to, the door was open and you might leave your door open if you're feeling a bit lonely. So you just see people in passing and it, it kind of creates that casual awareness. And you get the same in, you know, 
the way workplaces are changing. So that sort of low level of association, I think, is really, really important because it is the foundation. Well, I'm doing my bit for the local community. I'm going to the pub on a fairly regular basis. That's very good. Of I'm, I'm a giver. You're a martyr, <clears throat> Thomas. That's what you are. You're a martyr. I think there's something worth remembering there, isn't there? Because, okay, as we said at the outset, what we're trying to do here is have conversations that educate us. I think there's something around that kind of design for connection. And, you know, that's something that we can think about in the workplace. You know, how do you... How do you design something so you get more kind of quote-unquote accidental interactions? They're not at all accidental because we're facilitating them, we're creating them. If we have some workplaces that are difficult to connect in, we can identify that. And that could be because of physical infrastructure, but it also could be intellectual, couldn't it? It could be the way that information and knowledge flows within an organisation yeah. and the way people... I mean, Stuart, you've got this really good, you know, the easiest bit of advice I ever heard you give, Stuart, was park your car at the other end of the car park and walk the long way through the building when you're the chief exec. Mm. You know, rather than where's the chief exec's car parking spot? It's always right beside the front door, isn't it? To minimise the amount of time they have to spend moving around. Like, flip that on its head and then you get to bump into people and you know at the end of the year you're going to get more great advice from the people who work with you than you are some from fancy dance consultants who pay a fortune. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, casual casual contact is a real thing. So when I did some work with the British Red Cross on loneliness at work and we looked at the literature and, you know, the literature is clear that the kind of it's not just about physical stuff. It is about cultures. You know, you can create cultures where relationships are just not valued, not prioritised, where people's interactions are very transactional. That's that's not building that foundational level of relationship. So, you know, culture is really, really important. But also you know, the extent to which we bump into each other. Now, I'm really sceptical about a view that says remote working, hybrid working is terrible for our connection because the work that I did suggested it was a lot more mixed. Partly because for some people, although maybe their workplace relationships were less sustained, they had much better home relationships. So they were much less lonely because other stuff was going better for them since they'd been able to work remotely, for example. But also because... You know, it, it's not just about physical presence. Being physically in a room with people is not going to protect you from becoming lonely if the relationships aren't right. And I'm, you know, I am confident that with all of the inventive, inventiveness of humanity, we can find ways to enable that in remote and hybrid working rather than saying everybody must go back to the office and line the pockets of um, landowners. But, you know, I think that there is something about how do we enable relationships to build in the workplace? How do we enable relationships to build in the different places that we are? And recognise that what I want might be different to what you want and give space for that as well. So it's not about, you know, I'm pizza Tuesdays. That's just, that's just not the way that you create meaningful connection. But it is about valuing relationships and giving space for those. And, you know, that is about the places that we design, but those places could be virtual as well as physical. I think it's my key point. So something you just said there, Kate, kind of just kind of inspired a question. And, you know, really talking about how we design connection in to modern workplaces and buildings. Like, when did we stop? doing it because I think back to when I first started working Kidderminster for a carpet firm and they used to have um, a social club and golf courses and tennis they met a welfare officer and then we stopped doing that so was that kind of the end that got us to where we are or do you see it slightly differently in your work do you know I don't know 
For sure. But I mean, I think in some ways we have moved along a trajectory where we start to see that stuff is sort of nice to have, fluffy, you know, not important. And I think it you 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 learning the lessons of that now, I think, where people don't feel that real sense of connection to their workplaces and don't have that kind of association of identity around it. Now, partly that is because the way we work has changed. We don't necessarily work for one organisation all the time. It doesn't make sense to necessarily have everything that we do and are wrapped up in our workplace. People want to have that diversification. But I think those changes are not without impact. And I think for a long time, we thought they sort of were nice to have that we could lock off when the margins were tight. But actually realistically they're not and I think it's really interesting if you think about companies like Timpsons you know who obviously work a lot with ex-offenders you know really trying to make sure that work is not only work but also really stabilizing influence in their lives they do have things like holiday homes for their staff they do enable and you know engage with the wider lives and personhoods of the people that they work with and I think that there's a model there for all of us it's not just about when you're working with former friends I think it's you know it's also about thinking about well how do we create a situation where we're going to really really engage someone in a way that this work is going to feel quite meaningful quite important and you know worth you know worth worth sticking with there does remain a demand for it I think you're right Kate I mean Stuart we and I were discussing just literally just this morning about a company who's, we were looking at some of the data that had been generated within them. And one of the things that the employees had said was that there was they had a bit of an appetite for a greater public profile. They wanted people to know about their work. They wanted the local community to know that they existed and what they did. They, you know, they were proud of their work and they didn't just see themselves as this island, you know, we come to work and we do our thing. They just instinctively got that we, sh- we should be telling people about what we do. And you know, maybe there's an economic benefit, maybe there isn't, but there is a desire not to be just plonked in the middle of a community and have no connection with it, which I think is sometimes what has happened. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of organisations do have volunteering schemes, a lot of organisations, you know, do that sort of stuff that try and connect themselves into the wider community life. And I think that that's really sensible. I mean, I think there's a really interesting question about kind of, you know, how much of our connection should be at work? One of the interesting debates that happens in, in loneliness is is looking at the, the data on gender and loneliness, which is quite mixed, but generally suggests, particularly among older people, that, that women are slightly lonelier than men. But there's also a real fear that men's loneliness is underestimated, and that might be because of the way that they respond to the same questions being different, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think when organisations work with older men particularly, they find really, really deep deep loneliness and that's often been triggered by retirement so retirement has been this particularly if retirement and bereavement come quite close together it can be very very difficult but that's often for men because a lot of their identity was wrapped up with work you know and all of their relationships and all of the people they related to but actually there's a thing about that too because if we build really really meaningful relationships at work they don't have to end when we actually don't work there anymore and there's an interesting question about have we um neglected the idea of actually making those relationships totally real as opposed to just day-to-day interactions but yeah at the moment there are you know there are a cohort of older men older men very lonely because their only social contact was at work um so you know we have to get the, the balance right in terms of building people's capacity for relationship 
Um, and when Stuart did the introduction um, a little while ago, Kate, he said that we had three questions. And I'm going to pose the second one to you now because you've touched on it a few times. And I don't want you to kind of, <laughs> I don't want to steal your thunder by not <laughs> asking you the question. So the second question is, why does this thing which we call human connection matter? I think I sort of have, yeah, touched on this in, in many ways. I mean, I think human connection is really fundamentally part of what makes us human. We are social animals. And so disconnected from one another we do not thrive fundamentally we just don't thrive you know our connections with one another kind of anchor our identity they help us know who we are they're kind of practical health and support in lots of ways emotional health and support but like I say I think it's really really fundamental there's a really interesting kind of debate about what is loneliness and one of the views that's you know not only kind of upheld by research but also very poetic is that loneliness is like hunger or thirst but for connection so it's literally the kind of trigger uh, that tells us that we need to go and do something that our body and our soul need so you know i think really fundamentally the stuff matters because it's part of what makes us human it matters at a public policy level, I've been very much part of trying to put this on the agenda. It matters at a public policy level because it really, really damages our health and our well-being. And then via those things also, the, the cost to society is significant when we're too lonely. So, you know, I think it really matters on, on a range of levels. But like I say, I just think it's so fundamental to who we are as people. Loneliness is like hunger and thirst, Tony. That's what the big bucks are for. That's why we're paying this lady so much to join us this morning. That's all the way from the London. It's I not me. I mean, in fairness, it's not me. It's eminent psychologists. But like, <laughs> I, I just think it's it, it's a really powerful illustration of just how fundamental. Mm. I think I think the research you're referring to there, Kate. Um, if it's the same one that I kind of skimmed over, given your in-depth knowledge, but. It struck me that lots of people who feel particularly lonely seem to be people, I, I kind of called it people on the margins. So we had home workers, we had ethnic groups, we had people with disabilities. There was even kind of managers in there. And I, I put managers on the margins because they were a small group. Is that kind of a fair assumption or have I kind of completely misread the report? So, yes, you're talking about the, the work that I did on loneliness in the workplace. And, yeah, generally speaking, looking at loneliness across any aspect of our lives but there is a massive correlation between other groups the groups that are in other ways disadvantaged and loneliness so if you are disabled if you have um, poor health or um, mental or physical health if you are a carer if you're on low income if you're insecurely housed you are at more risk of loneliness in the work that we did in the workplace we particularly saw also that managers were quite lonely at work in terms of their loneliness at work which is really interesting I think it tells us something about what the quality of your relationships and how that matters to loneliness because I suspect sometimes managers feel quite squeezed um middle managers between kind of pressure from above and not being able to be in full relationship with people below because of the fact you've got to have a uh, kind of transactional relationship but like I say generally speaking the biggest risk factors for loneliness are those that are generally kind of marginalized people so if you have other challenges going on in your life your risk of, of becoming lonely on a chronic basis so coming to the point where you feel often or always lonely is much, much higher. You know what, Tony, um, as we're talking, we're identifying all the groups and peoples who are lonely. I'm wondering who's left, like who, who isn't lonely? I mean, at one level, none of us, because all of us 
are likely to experience loneliness at some point in our lives. But actually, if you if you look at kind of chronic loneliness, which we define as when we're lonely often or always, that's more like around 10% of the population. So it's a, it's significant, but it's a minority. So most of us are not lonely all of the time. Most of us will experience loneliness. Sometimes it'll be a transient experience, usually relating to something going on in our lives at that time, and we will come through it. And, you know, that is great news for most of us. There is no one that isn't at risk of loneliness, but we are at most risk when we are going through big life changes. And if we don't have, when we come into those, a set of advantages. So if I am going through a bereavement, but I have a really strong wider set of connections in my life, the bereavement will be awful and I will undoubtedly feel very lonely at times, but I will probably come through it because I have those wider set of connections. I feel like I belong in my community. I'm not facing disadvantage and discrimination. I don't have an insecure housing and I'm not living in poverty. If I have that set of advantages, I'm much more likely to be able to come through that period of acute loneliness, which will also be associated with the bereavement. Likewise, if I move to a new place and I'm separated from all my prior friendships, but I've got this hinterland of advantage, then I will likely come through that period of initial loneliness. If I don't, or if something else goes wrong, or if there are challenges in the community that I then move into where everyone, you know, there's high levels of crime and not enough social um, activity and the local voluntary sector is decimated, so there isn't really that kind of hub of activity in, in the community, then things will get more difficult. And I my risk of becoming chronically lonely will be greater. So yeah, it is not going to affect all of us um, in the way that needs intervention, but the risks are there and we can see what they are. So we can do things to kind of mitigate those, but we also need to be very mindful of the people who are facing those risks when it comes to kind of thinking about, well, who might need some additional support with this issue of loneliness. Kate, are we hard on people who say that they're lonely and does that prevent people from not being lonely quicker? Well, thanks for joining us today, Kate. <laughs> short answer to that so there is a really big stigma around loneliness. And this has been sort of part of the conversation about loneliness for a very long time. It's why, for example, when we are trying to measure loneliness in the population, we don't only use a question that's directly using the word loneliness because people have been very concerned for a long time that people will be unkeen to say they are lonely. I think if the pandemic had any upsides, which it didn't. But if it did, one was the much more universal experience of loneliness did reduce that stigma. So voluntary sector organisations that I had been working with were seeing more people coming forward. And instead of having to be coaxed and gently walked through to the point where they'd say, actually, you know, I'm really lonely, they were coming out with it. Because it was okay to say it because everybody was experiencing some degree of isolation and loneliness. It was just much more normal. So I do think that that is shifting a bit. I also think there are kind of generational changes. I don't think young people are necessarily so squeamish. It's really interesting that for a long time when I worked primarily with older adults on loneliness, there was a very strong push that we should never use the word, you know, keep the word down the line. At some point, it might be useful for people to name the issue and talk about it explicitly, but we put it down the agenda. Whereas young people who've experienced loneliness, designing a campaign on loneliness, what have put that word front and centre. They want to talk about loneliness specifically. So I think that, you know, maybe there are changes in terms of our willingness to speak about it. Hopefully we are starting to reduce 
that stigma. But yes, it, there is a stigma. Because I think when I've spoken to people who experience loneliness, what they really worry about is, am I saying something about me by saying I'm lonely? You know, will people just go, it's probably you, isn't it? And, or, and sometimes both at the same time, am I putting pressure on the very small number of people that are there for me? If I say I'm really lonely, am I going to make my daughter, son, granddaughter, spouse feel terrible? So people kind of feel a responsibility not to use the word and a fear of using the word. But yeah, there is a stigma. It's a real issue. And there is still judgment about because that's what drives stigma. And um, just wanted to ask you the third of our three questions that we mentioned a long, long time ago, but you clearly have a passion for this, Kate. What's what's your journey to human connection? How do you get to talk about it and to be where you are today? There's two things going on with me and the loneliness agenda. One is I came to it as happens in most people's careers by accident. So I worked for a very long time for, um, as was Help the Aged and now become Age UK. Um, so working on older people's issues and really, you know, very passionate about that agenda. And across every agenda that you work on around that world, there's a kind of heavy current of how important loneliness is. And I, I did a lot of work on social exclusion among older adults. And, and, you know, and as part of that, we had to think about, well, what is it that makes makes a good life in older age? Because when in those days we talked about social exclusion for younger people or working age, there was a sort of norm, a norm of do well at school, move through education, or a norm of get a job, progress in your job, that we were trying to get younger people and working age adults back to. Well, what's the norm that we're trying to restore for people who've been excluded in later life? And connection is a massive part of that. So I think that sort of need to talk about and be unashamed of talking in public policy spaces about connection and relationship has been something I've been talking about for a, a long time and started with that work on, on ageing and older people. And as I've worked and continue to work on this, you know, you start to kind of look at loneliness across the life course. And, you know, I'm really interested in loneliness among working age adults because it feels to me like we we started maybe talking more about older adults. Partly that was driven because of better having better evidence there. There's now an agenda around recognising young people's loneliness <laughs> And I really don't want us to miss the middle. Who, what about people of working age who are extremely young because it's a very real issue? So I think there's a sort of professional interest in, in this agenda. But I think for all of us that work on this, this sphere, you know, the more you talk about loneliness and you think about loneliness, the more you recognise that for yourself, this is really important. And I know in my own life, in loneliness, you talk about the idea of a, a mismatch between the relationships that we want and those we need and that everybody's kind of quota of relationships that they need is different. I know I need a lot of people around me. Like I am sort of the archetype of needing a really big array of different types of connection to feel good. And, you know, I know in my own life that that requires attention, that that requires care to your relationships. And I just, you know, I just think it's so important that we keep talking about it. So yeah, I'm, you know, this is a an agenda I really recognise. And, you know, there have been times in my life when, you know, I have experienced loneliness. I have been one of those people that's had enough support to come through it. But, you know, when I was a new mum, loneliness was a genuine issue that I had to kind of really work hard to make sure it didn't become part of my life. The pandemic was really tough, you know, and I think the more you work on these issues, the more you are uh, comfortable recognising this is part of the human condition and but passionate about wanting that not to be something that people have to experience. One thing we've heard quite a number of people talk about is the importance of small 
So small gestures, and often literally gestures, a nod of the head, a wave of the hand, a smile, kind of brief conversations. Is that something that you've come across, that these things can be, small things can be disproportionately important? Yeah, there's research evidence on this that it describes these as ties. So so there used to be a distinction between weak ties and strong ties, and our strong ties were what was really important for loneliness. And weak ties, so, you know, like I nod to the postman, being a weak tie, less important. And the research that I first saw on this sort of recharacterized us as saying the thick ties and thin ties, and they all matter. So yes, we have thick ties with our, you know, spouses and our best friends and our whatever else it is. But our thin ties, you know, the I usually nod to the postman as, as they come past. Those are important too. It, it kind of started to say this stuff actually really matters to how we feel. And I think that that is absolutely right and those small gestures are part of building those thin ties and we can deliberately choose to be people that build them and it will make us feel better too I mean I think you know being connected to one another is not just about deep relationships it's just not plausible you can't just only have deep relationships and not have any wider connection in the world but like I say there's good evidence that they're all really important for a while but also that they build, you know, if you live in a community where there's no one that you would smile and nod to, if somebody turns up the next day with even a bucket full of money and says, let's do a community activity together, there's just no basis on which to build from that. And so, you know, I work with um, some organisations who are doing work on kind of community development approaches to really trying to build community. And, you know, it's much, much harder in communities where there was no bumping into each other's space and people didn't know each other because there's nothing to start from. You, you've got you've got no sense of trust. You don't feel like you belong. You're not necessarily feeling like these are your people. You know, you just don't have that connection. So I think basic, really small links with people make a difference. The other thing that I'm always really struck by in this was there was a program called Aging Better, which was run by the lottery. And they invested in 14 communities in England. One of them was Camden. And in Camden, the team there became very seized of this idea of, of the people that nobody knows and how could they support the people that nobody knows. Their hunch was there were people in their area who literally knew nobody and nobody was in contact with them. And so one of the ways they did that was through street outreach. And they would just go out in the street and say hello to people and chat to people and say, you know, how's your day going? And obviously lots of people said, fine, thanks, and walked off. But they did, through that process, meet people who genuinely were known by nobody and genuinely had no contact. And, you know, just being there and saying, hello, how's your day going? And opening a conversation made an enormous difference. So I think, you know, if you think about, obviously what Camden was offering them was a, was a genuine conversation and a connection, but even the smile and the nod and the wave, if you're known by nobody, just makes you feel that bit more human just makes you feel that more alive in the world um so you know it's so so important i think for all of us and it's obviously a global thing because that sounds like the uh the friendship bench idea in zimbabwe doesn't it and the lonely everyday campaign in australia yeah exactly and you know this is not a uk thing you know the question of how do we reverse a trend which is towards seeing people as economic units and recognize that actually that just isn't going to work and we're going to need to recognize people are people and they need to connect with one another and they need to feel valued and respected beyond their productivity. That's 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 a part of a global phenomenon that, you know, people are now waking up to the need to sort of row back from. 
So to close our conversation today, Kate, we'd like to ask you to leave us with a gift. That's right, Kate. We'd like you to share with us the one essential ingredient that makes up human connection, in your opinion. It's a big question, and I don't think I know the answer, but I think I think I, I go back to something I said earlier, which is that human connection is vital because it's part of our humanity. And I think connection happens in recognition of our shared humanity. So it's those moments where we basically recognise one another as human and kind of find the point of linkage. And I think the most important thing in connecting together as humans is recognising that, sure, I need connection, but you do too, because you're human. And if you're fundamentally human, you're going to have that same need for connection that I do. And I think that's the kind of invitation to us. And I think, therefore, we can feel invited to connect because actually, fundamentally, if the person you're with is a human, they will need connection in the same way. It might not look quite the same, but I think there is an invitation in our shared humanity to connect. What a lovely way to finish, Tony. That's amazing, isn't it? Thank you for that, Kate. That's fantastic. And that's the end of uh, today's Human Connection Journey podcast. A huge thank you to you, Kate, for joining us, for, for uh, sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it. Thank you to everybody else for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation and you hope you'll join us next time as we continue our quest to better understand human connection.